Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Mark Binet. Mark Binet coaches men and women about the devotional polarity between masculine dominance and feminine radiance. He's the author of the Truthcock series, currently eight volumes and counting. Truthcock is a radical masculinity as a post-spiritual path. Its objective is to reverse the systematic emasculation of men in the West. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. How emasculated were you in the past? <laughs> That's such a great question. I don't think anybody's asked me that before. What is the most emasculated thing you ever did? Most emasculated thing I ever did. Wow, Philip, you're talented. <laughs> it's embarrassing to actually say, but I will tell you. I formed a relationship with a woman who I uh, was online. Is mm. And it was six months long, and we never met in person. And because of some issues that she had, she wouldn't show her face. And, and when I finally found out what she looked like, she was actually quite gorgeous, but that revealed her identity. And this was something she was trying to hide. So for six months, I had been going along with her agenda, her plan, not knowing what she was doing, simply trusting what she was doing, because I was so heart-oriented. And when I found out what she was trying to hide from me, I couldn't be in a relationship anymore because I was being deceived. So it was emasculated of me to even put myself in that situation at all. And what kind of mistaken belief do you have back then that now you think like this is crazy? Uh, the mistaken belief is this idea that you can go into the wound, into the abyss with a woman, and you serve her inside that swamp, inside that wound, inside that trauma, instead of leading her out of it. And what happens is when you get too into her swamp, you can't, you don't have your own clarity. You can't lead. And eventually that will depolarize you. So you were in the swamp being drained and just like barely <laughs> surviving, keeping your head above water? Well, I was being that loving man, all right, who is not trying to step on toes, not trying to ruffle feathers, just holding space for whatever wounds she needed to process. I did that two relationships in a row, actually. And I thought, that's what a good man does. He holds space for the woman's swamp. So to return to you, your question, that's really what it was. Holding space for a woman's swamp means you're eventually in the swamp with them. You're not in your masculine. Your masculine will help give the clarity and leadership so that they exit that swamp. You don't go into the swamp with women as a way of demonstrating your love. That will backfire 100% of the time. Kind of reminds me of the story of Odysseus, 
who wanted to return back home and he had to strap himself on the mast and wax in his ears because the sirens were calling him. I mean, that happens a lot that the sirens steer you from the path. Now, I'm wondering, can you turn those sirens into queens when you're the right man? <laughs> oh, that's great. You're great, man. I, I love the Odyssey. I studied the classics for a couple of years. It's so great mm -hmm. to hear that in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta eat the classics, man. Like, what are we doing? Read the classics, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, there's only so much that a man can do. He has to become a master of himself, and that will change the way he perceives reality. But if they're still in their swamp because they're committed to being in that pit, <laughs> then that's their half of the equation. And so I can take care of my half of the equation, my side of the street change the way I perceive reality, but that doesn't change the fact that they're still in their swamp. There will be no chemistry there because I don't go into the swamp and I only am attracted to the feminine radiance. Can you drain the swamp or should you steer away from the swamp? <laughs> drain the swamp. Well, that's great, buddy. I would help do that as a coach. And I do that as a coach, but I wouldn't do that in a romantic sexual relationship Unless the swamp is like a temporary thing. The woman can't just be there all the time, right? So if a woman that I, if my beloved now experiences her swamp, I can help lead her out of it, but I don't go into it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you can't, once you go into someone else's swamp, you're basically in the swamp yourself and you've lost your, you're off your masculine axis. Because you also sometimes have this balance between excitement and emotion and drama and passion and the comfort, you know, and the safety. So I'm always wondering, like, is the drama that the women throwing at you a reflection of your own lack of masculinity or when there is too much drama, even though if you're a masculine man, you should steer away from that because it's just, you know, not fulfilling yeah. you. So what happens is if your woman is going through drama and you get caught up in it, you get pulled off axis and you get depolarized because then you start to react and you're no longer emotionally responsible and you lose your leadership. So a man simply who doesn't want to do that if he's in his masculine and if he's in his dominance, as it were, and we can talk about what that means. So if she's a drama queen, if she's addicted to drama and he stays on his masculine axis and he's emotionally responsible, that's going to be, it's not going to work because she's going to end up depolarizing things with all of her drama because she's not showing up with her feminine gift, her heart, her radiance, her vulnerability. And there's nothing for the man at that point. Why would we want to be with a woman who's just perpetual drama? There's nothing that she's giving. She has to give. A succubus, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. A succubus. <laughs> yeah. Steer clear of the succubus and the sirens as well. Women will throw femininity at you at the level that you're able to handle those waves, I think. So in the beginning, when you're still building yourself up as a man, when you are with these very emotionally laden, adventurous, sexual women, they, they, will, pray on, they, will, they will exhaust you because you don't oh, have yeah. enough to give to yourself and you will become depleted. I meet so many men and I'm still working myself up towards that. It's all exciting, but I feel completely, I feel drained you know, after it. Yeah, because they're taking, energetically, they're taking, they're using their feminine charm 
and feminine wile and skills and seduction and sexuality. They're not giving from their heart. They're taking from you because they got a deficit inside. So the, the feminine energy that I teach is very abundant and it's the cup overfloweth, you know, the heart is open and emanating radiance. So when I say, say feminine, I really mean it in that positive sense. I'm not talking about the swampy feminine. That's I don't teach the swampy feminine. <laughs> yeah, because they, they have like strong men. And what's the other thing that weak women, I think it's just a matter of like the inherent feminine and masculine qualities. It's not that, okay, just be weak and depends on how you look at it, right? So also the definition, what, what is vulnerable, right? Like how yeah. do you see vulnerability? But there's this thing like, oh, men can have the power, men can have the strength and women are just there to serve those men. H how would you word it that this misconception that some women could have, I just have to be negating myself be submissive okay. sacrifice my identity to serve the man and then we have a good relationship <laughs> right they think oh if i'm a doormat no it's like this imagine you're a woman in the bedroom and you want to have a great orgasm do you want an emasculated man no you want a powerful dominant man who penetrates you erotically energetically and the more receptive you are to that penetration the greater your orgasm if you're blocked if you're resistant if you are uh, protecting yourself you're not going to have a great orgasm you're not probably not going to have an orgasm at all so take that out of the bedroom into real life outside of the bedroom and realize that you want really really powerful men to energetically penetrate you if you don't receive that gift vulnerably you don't get the energetic orgasm in life so to speak that might seem like an exaggeration but walk around there as a woman and be vulnerable and receive the power of the men in your life and you will feel awesome and if you're around really energetically dominant men you're going to feel even better. I'm not saying it's going to approach orgasm outside of the bedroom, but it will feel amazing when you receive his penetrative power, his dominance. So it's not about being a doormat. It's about receiving his gift and not being resistant. Isn't there also, this is something interesting that I saw. I saw like a Teal Swan video about it, about the, <laughs> the, the gift of building up men their confidence i know you should have self-confidence but i think and i'm wondering about your views about this if you want to make the power of the cock of your men grow give him respect so it confidence builds up and with that confidence he has even more power and he will have a bigger cock so yes there's a lot of responsibility <laughs> with the man but i think if women want a more powerful man by just giving him respect and also building that confidence he doesn't need it but it feels good to be respected as a man he will yeah. be even more powerful in his showing up in the world. Yeah, he'll be more turned on and more likely to serve you, right? The more feminine a woman, the more the masculine serves that feminine energy. So if she wants to be served through his energetic and erotic penetration, then she needs to be as feminine and vulnerable as possible. That's her gift. See, they're equals. They just have different gifts. 
Yeah. And I think when women say like, oh my God, you're so powerful. You penetrate me so deeply. I'm so <laughs> wet. You have such force, you know, it builds up your strength as a man, you know, but we, we don't often say that as men in the other way, when you are in our masculine, right? Like, oh, you're so strong. You hit me so hard. You are riding me so deeply. Like it's more about receiving, you know, and just, you know, having that full embodied expression that transcends the mindly realm of the man and sees like oh my god like i'm creating this this woman is in ecstasy and it right. it's that dance between the masculine and the feminine right like sex is a great example of how those two polarities dance you know can it ever be reversed can a relationship ever work if a man is fully isn't feminine and a woman is fully masculine you know that's a great question they would need to be very aware of how that role-playing needs to take place. I would say this, Philip, and I do say this, the man does the masculine better than the woman. The woman does the feminine better than the man because that's their design. That's their physiology, biology, evolution, natural law. So if they start running energy that is not native to their body in the same way, then they can get into problems because they're in a compensatory mode, by which I mean, is why is the man running all this feminine energy? What is he compensating for? Why is the woman running all this masculine energy? What is she compensating for? And it's really when a woman is in this do, 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 do mode, that she starts to create more and more of that masculine energy, maybe, you know, running more testosterone, for example, let's say. And it's the same with a man. If he is feeling, 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 then he feminizes himself. Maybe he's creating more estrogen. Who knows? So I don't take the bio, uh, the chemical hormone approach to things per se, mm-hmm. but that it, if it's there to support what I'm saying, great. <laughs> yeah, well, we see it as that the sperm count is plummeting like drastically. And uh, yeah. you, you see it a lot in, you know, the fertility of uh, men. I don't know about women, but probably also that it has a huge effect like compared to the Humphrey Bogart men, let's say, and the men now that there is like a shift, you know? Oh, yeah. If you put the typical man of 150 years ago and compare him to the men of today you're going to see a drastic reduction of masculine traits, typically. And it's because of this systemic emasculation that's necessary to keep the slaves in line. This is also what I believe, but other people talk with Nini and discuss this kind of aspect. When I take a look at the movies I grew up with, like Mel Gibson, Bruce Willis, like Rambo, Arnold Schwarzenegger, we're talking about these masculine archetypes, even like James Bond. But when I take a look right now at the movies, you see the social engineering of the no no gender agenda, right? The, in, the infertile agenda being pushed on so many levels. Breakdown of the family, you know, reversal of the roles, then the lead roles in Star Wars and other mainstream movies. You're going to tell me that that's all organic the last 15 and 20 years that I see this completely reversal of rock roles. There's something yeah. artificial about the agenda is being pushed in this woke agenda this culture Marxist, this identity politics agenda, people always describe it as a conspiracy theory. Just, just look at the roles. It's all yeah. about women can do the same as men. We have to have the obligatory Asian, the obligatory black guy, the obligatory Indian, because else we're racist. But it's so, I mean, I don't mind. R- r- 
I mean, she was maybe a bit masculine, but I didn't mind Ripley in Alien that she was like oh, yeah. a woman. Kind of like makes sense that back then. I didn't judge yeah. her at all or the bit more masculine Terminator, the, the woman who played it. I have no problem at all. It's not like, okay, this is weird, but this forced completely reversal of roles and it's, it's in all the series and movies, it's definitely being pushed to push a certain narrative. It is, you know, and it's because you know you're being forced, force-fed an agenda. That's the real issue. Like, one of my absolute favorite actors is Denzel Washington. I fucking love watching him. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just a master, and he's so compelling. But I love watching him because he's so fucking talented. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a black guy. I'm not going to sit here and watch black actors because I'm forced to, because there's a fucking agenda. Mm-hmm. I want to watch them because they're fucking awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, I just want awesome actors, athletes, whatever. I don't care about the race, but if you're fucking force feeding me that agenda to, to manipulate my cognition for your intended results, then we got a problem. And I think also in general, I mean, we see this right now with the black-white polarization. It's bigger than in the 60s. We see this right now with all this gender equality, which is basically numbing down the gender polarities to gender sameness. And it's making the relationships very unsatisfying. Absolutely. You know, on one thing, they, they, they follow the agenda, which they think like, yes, this is what people want. And we see the result that we have more miserable people as ever, you know, polarization, black and white, etc. So I'm saying like, you want to push this, but it's not working. Why do we keep pushing this? Yeah. And, and what happens is that the agenda, the woke agenda is so in your face and flagrant. Then you and I start looking like we're these conservative, you know, bigots. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, how did we get lumped into the conservative bigot category? We're just concerned about this brainwashing that's happening, this indoctrination that's happening. You know, you or I, we don't have this bigotry inside of us. We're just fucking sick of this agenda. That's what we're sick of. Yeah, because, you know, it's not like you just are there like, I'm just going to chop wood and you have to stay there in your couch, woman, shut the fuck up before I beat you with my hand. Like, not this kind of stuff, you know, not that women can't do what they want, be empowered, do whatever they want. But we see on one hand, men are being told a lie that is not making them happy and they can't seduce women anymore. And I see a lot of women in your group, mostly like 30, 40s, right? They've been sold an illusion and then they're waking up and they like, whoa, right. fuck. And they just lost their femininity. They lost their respect right. for the men. And you just talk that truth. And it's like, yeah, I see a lot of women. Correct me if I'm wrong, 30, 40. It's like, yeah, man, you're preaching the truth. Like I was told this, but actually when I look at my relationship, my attraction, what makes me feel alive, Actually, what you're preaching is actually what fulfills me more. That's right. It's the 30s, 40s, 50s, even as late as the 60s. And they were sold the other side of the coin that I was sold. So I was sold, and many men were sold this idea that if we cut off our clocks, then we're good. And we give away our power and we substitute our power with our heart. Women were given the other side of that coin. If we get rid of our heart and get into our power, we'll be good as women. And so they become masculinized and the men become feminized and they have that inverted polarity, what I call pseudo polarity, and it creates dysfunctional relationships. You can just sit down in a bar in Western <laughs> Europe 
or in woke cities and just watch <clears throat> couples, watch it energetically, watch the communication, watch the behavior on an energetic level. You see a lot of men sitting there as castrated puppies. The woman on an energetic level is telling me, I have lost respect for you. <laughs> Please man up, but I don't want to tell you. I would be so much more attractive if you would lead and make decisions, you know, but they live that prescribed narrative, that sedation narrative that is not making them happy, but I see it all the time. Like there's no balance in this relationship. Right. And it's very hard to overcome this conditioning. I often marvel how easy it is for masculinized women to see how emasculated men are. They can see it very clearly, mm -hmm. but they can't see their own masculinization clearly. Also, emasculated men can see really clearly how masculinized women have become but they find it so very hard to see their own emasculation right the conditioning is so deep so for example when i when zach and david and i talk about feelings for men and we're like men stop expressing your feelings well these emasculated males are up in arms they're like i need to express my feelings feelings are beautiful blah blah, blah. and they don't understand what happens when they substitute all that vulnerable feeling expression for powerful penetrative leadership, it's totally flipping the conditioning on its head, right? And similarly, when women start substituting in that vulnerable expression of feelings for their power, and they're just like, okay, I'm gonna put the power over here and get in my vulnerable expression of feelings. I think probably this is the most controversial thing that's often is like a discussion about with your work. Sometimes I see masculinity coaches and what they preach is men have to open up and share their feelings because yeah. they've been taught to have this stoic ideal. And I'm not <laughs> going to tell you that I have this uh, radical point, like never express your emotions there, but it's like this dumbed down, watered down masculinity thing on feminine principles. And then they sell this as the new masculinity, but... Uh, yeah. It's these uh, men with like long hair, very feminine, very radiant, maybe you would call it, but yes, it's not exactly. very penetrating truth and not no. very confident and grounded kind of no. masculinity. So it is, it, it, I do call it the new masculinity, which is not masculine. It's the feminization of the masculine. And essentially, it androgenizes men. It makes them androgynous. And then these teachers think that that's the new masculinity. It's not. The new masculinity, as I frame it, is dominance, which is cock is online, instinct is online, power is online. So the new masculine, these men are really powerful, but also the heart is online and it's guiding the show. So the predominant energy signature of the masculine, in the way I frame it, is power. It's not How hard. would you make the distinction between being domineering and controlling? For the dominant man, he's in control of himself. He's in control of his environment, but he may not be doing much. He's just in his mind, in his body, in his energy. He's just in control. He's a master. So he's not trying to dominate another person. He's not trying to control another person. That's not how it works that's the asshole dominance the dominance that i'm talking about is one where you just feel his power and he is influencing through his presence and through his mastery through his mind and his heart 
but he's not trying to control anybody in that egocentric way. Could I frame it this way? I love a quote, which is like, men create worlds, women are drawn into worlds. That it's like, you're such a powerful leader and you have so much energy and territory there that the woman temporarily, as long as the man stays in his power, submits to the leadership and the guy making the decisions because she trusts him. Exactly. So if he's got an extraordinary inner vision, he leads and creates these worlds. You know, she lives in that world or worlds and makes them exquisitely delicious with her feminine energy. He is serving her with his leadership. And this is where people need to understand that a dominant man serves the radiant feminine. So it's not about controlling. It's not about dominating. It's about serving, but he can only serve when he's fully in his power and leading. That's his gift. It's not about inequality. It's not about superiority. They are equals. They just bring different gifts. Okay? Her gift is her radiant feminine heart, her vulnerably expressed feelings that are so delicious to him that he's compelled to serve them. Compelled. What's the role of pain and aggression in men? <laughs> That's such a great question. All right. So pain. Pain is a sign that something needs to be fixed, all right, For the, in the context of masculinity, let's say. So anytime there's pain inside, the man has to do a scan. What's up? If this woman is feeling pain, he's got to do a scan. What's up? He communicates. He finds out how to lead better. So let's say pain is an invitation to lead better, first himself, then his woman. Aggression. Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> so I would say in the context of dominance and masculinity, aggression is about how forcefully and intensely one is penetrating the world. You don't want to use that aggression to hurt other people. I don't know what definition you're using for aggression, but what I want in my framing is to say that aggression is basically how power is penetrating. Yeah, I, I would use it as a way to challenge that aggression towards using it as assertiveness to stand for my mission or my values. Yeah, that's a great way of framing it. That's how I would use it as well. So it's not power that is mistreating another person. If that's what someone means by aggression, then that's not what I would do. And that's not what I advocate or teach. So you know, your power is there to serve. Now, however, if someone is mistreating your family or your beloved and violently or even verbally, then you can use that power that you have to stop that. And you should. And maybe you will do it peacefully or maybe it won't be peaceful depending upon the circumstances. Yeah, all so, the time it will be either to a uh, boundary was being Cost, and then you can communicate it or a value or a need was being hit that's important to you and then you know like okay this is important to me so you can use it as like integration and self-reflection one thing often can a man take too much responsibility can a man gosh that's such great questions philip it's so good i he's first and foremost responsible for his truth and that's what allows him to be dominant right So he has to be careful that he doesn't take on too much responsibility outside of that in such a way that it diminishes his commitment to his truth. 
to his mission, to his purpose. If he does that, he will create a dissonance inside of himself that he will have to resolve. So if he's more responsible with his attention, then he will not overcommit, be overly responsible. He will know the limitations. And he, he must know those limitations. If he doesn't and he overextends himself, he fucks himself. Because this is often what I see. This is maybe what I would call toxic responsibility. Like it's all the responsibility of men right now. Everything is a responsibility of men. Yeah. When you talk about anything with like feminism, the wage gap, men, the seduction, it's all on men. Men have the responsibility. And I've, I've, you know, like I have, I've gone, this is not a controversial view. If you have a wallet and I put my wallet on Times Square and somebody steals it, that guy is still a thief who steals it. But I'm like, you know, it wasn't smart to leave my wallet there, right? So right. this is going to be controversial and triggering when people listen to it. But if you're going to dress and act like a complete slut, <laughs> and then some men are going to have ma- malicious intentions, which, you know, is repulsive, but it's, it's like, you know, just as these thieves, there are some people who will steal your money. There will, are some people who take advantage to totally negate you dropping the wallet there to totally negate you just completely dressing like a slut and not want to be treated like a slut. There also is some responsibility there. If a guy cheats, I've talked about this on another podcast. And you have done nothing to build up the confidence to be attractive, to have sex with the person for a year, three years. You had like three times sex in a year and that guy cheats. Is it the sole responsibility of your partner to be a selfish, cheating asshole? There also is a responsibility in women for the choices that we make, action, reaction. But it seems completely a taboo to just talk about the the responsibility aspect in women. I think we need to be responsible for understanding where the world is at at any given point in time when it comes to us and our behavior. So, for example, when I lived in New York City for And by the way, I want to, because people, it will be like triggering. I'm not slut shaming. I'm just saying if you dress (laughs) like a slut and people perceive you as a slut, people are visual creatures or they have a certain impression whether you want to be accepted for your character or not. You know, if I dress like a policeman and people think I'm a policeman, okay, you know, like, yeah. yeah. It's kind of more reasonable to do it if that guy takes advantage of you or steal your wallet. I think it's, it's repulsive. Most men think it's repulsive. But it's just that part of the equation, like also the wage gap, women not being assertive enough to negotiate like a better pay. It's like it can be taught. It's a taboo to talk about the aspect of women. It's all blamed on men. And it's like a one-sided discussion. Yeah. When I lived in New York City for 10 years, I would go into bad neighborhoods at night, let's say three or four in the morning, because I was living in those neighborhoods. (laughs) And I'm responsible for making that decision and knowing that I am in a neighborhood Mm. where there are people who would rob me and hold me up at gunpoint. I'm responsible for putting myself in that situation, knowing the likelihood of that behavior. So when women dress this way, I would say that they're wanting a certain degree of attention, but then they get upset when men give them more attention than what they wanted, but they don't have any control over that. If a woman is very scantily clad and it's got great breasts and unbelievable curves. Do you think society is too sexualized and women give too much away too quickly right now? What's your opinion about that? I do think when the society is hypersexualized and we'll let's talk about that in one moment 
they are getting, these women are getting attention for being so sexual in their appearance. They don't get to control that. They don't get to control how much attention they, ha- they receive. They get to control how they address, they dress. If they get too much attention, well, they should know that that's possible. And that's the risk that they take when they go out like that. If there's slut shaming, there's also man shaming in that moment. They're like, you shouldn't be giving me that much attention. You shouldn't be looking at my tits when I have a bra that almost exposes my nipple. Like, yeah, Yeah, but. (laughs) You shouldn't be looking at my tits when I'm showing them to you. (laughs) (laughs) I want attention, but not in such an obvious way. Okay. I want attention, but it needs to be on my terms with every single one of you people. Or even better, I only want attention from the guys that I like. Exactly. If you're ugly, don't give me attention. So what it is, is they're going out and they're, you know, showing themselves, but then they're upset because they don't control the attention that they're getting. Well, that's unreasonable. It's not the way the world works. So why are you getting upset with the way the world works? Maybe you're delighting in your own indignation. You like being a victim that you've just created yourself as a victim. So let's go to your other question. Do I think society is hypersexualized? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are multiple reasons for that. And that's an agenda as well. Okay. Because what it does is it just keeps people obsessed at that level of consciousness and they become addicted and they don't know of anything really greater than that. So, you know, it's like a man being addicted to porn. If he's addicted to porn, then he's emasculated he's a slave and that's the real reasoning behind porn the top-down agenda is to enslave men with porn and it works when did you realize that it was like an agenda what opened you up for a lot of people it was like 9-11 it's like mm, there's some crazy stuff going on here what was kind of like a flag like hmm, i'm being told something but there's something deeper here you know like the agenda the globalist agenda or the new world yeah for instance like that when you see like you know the story that's being told that i'm hearing that i'm seeing on like the media or in the mainstream narrative is not exactly something that makes sense or there's something fishy here was there some kind of event for you that well you know rabbit hole when i was in india in 1999 i watched the matrix about seven times (laughs) And I had to get on a bus to travel two hours to see it and two hours to come back to the village. I was doing some volunteer work in a village. So I'd say that was the first time. But there are two events that really made it so absolutely obvious. It's when I went to Israel and I was living in East Jerusalem because my girlfriend at the time, the Eastern European I was telling you about, she was working for the United Nations. And so we went to Jerusalem and I lived on the Palestinian side of town. And I saw these Palestinians and became friends with them. And in the West Bank, they were living behind walls. And in Gaza, they were living behind walls. And then there was apartheid in Jerusalem. And holy fuck, that woke me up in a major way. Because here are these people that were born, raised, and died behind walls their whole life. Outdoor concentration camps. Apartheid. And it's like, that didn't exist there before the Israelis were there, you know? And so I saw it and I was like, you can't rationalize this. No matter how much you try to rationalize it, here are millions of people being born in prison and dying in prison. And that made me depressed for about eight weeks while I was there. I was just, I felt like I was in hell. And the other incident, which was 
last year was the when I realized that evil was coming for us mm-hmm. with this scam. And you know, we know what the scam is. Mm-hmm. Evil is coming. And evil isn't just this panopticon of surveillance cameras everywhere or in our computer or on Facebook or with Panopticon, Google. Jeremy Bentham, he designed the prison so nobody could hide and you That's could right. be watched everywhere. And this is the kind of dystopian society, social credit system, surveillance everywhere. Everything that you do is monitored. No space where you can be yourself or make your own decisions. Right. Exactly. Thank you for that. Um, so with this scam, I don't know how sensitive we want to be for your audience here, but you said nothing's off limits. Nothing so. is off limits. <laughs> Nothing is <laughs> off limits here. So in the United States, we have a fake pandemic. We have fake news. We have a fake election. And now we have a fake president. This is evil. And this is an agenda coming for each one of us. Right. And so that's another big wake up. In before this scandemic, I didn't quite understand the extent of the that the how evil how active evil is. Yeah, how deep the tentacles go and how much work is being done in the shadows. Yeah, it's coming for us. See, it's not just some passive evil looking through our computer screen or you know, monitoring our emails. It's actually coming for us. And that was a big wake up for me. It's like Atlantis. That was like the height of, <laughs> height of uh, technology, and then it was their yeah. downfall. What I see right now is like happening. Like, you know, if people ever want to open up the rabbit hole, and I keep on mentioning it in my podcast, look at Edward Bernays, the nephew of Freud, grandfather propaganda, everything that he did to make sure to play on people, their needs and fear, etc. Look up the Tavistock Institute, what they did right. of like engineering conflicts and making people go into war, you know, investigating trauma, what triggers people, etc. what the deal there. And look at the culture Marxism in the Frankfurter school where they like, you know, weaponized like identity in the beginning, maybe to a benefit because with all white Western Catholic, etc., And that was the only valid point. I'm all for different points of view, but now it's just completely being weaponized. And that is not a theory. That's not a conspiracy. You can look uh-huh. this up because I talked about this in my last podcast. We have all this knowledge about psychological and social behavior, what makes people better, stronger, healthier, more fulfilled. And we're not using this. What is being used of this knowledge? How to keep people polarized, how to capture attention to make people vote a certain way for politicians, for pharma, for conflict. So we're using it for evil, not for good. Right. Ah, We're on the same page with respect to all this. And you're a man of many hats, Philip. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and actually um now that i understand your background a little bit better i would say that my understanding of the masculine and feminine came from these studies as well not just my own heartbreak but i understood that there was an agenda meant to emasculate men and masculinize women so that the population is at war with itself a man gets at war with himself, he gets at war with his women, and all this conflict and dissension is manufactured as an agenda to keep the slaves at each other's throats so that we don't see our overlords and take collective action against them. So all these things that you were mentioning also informed my understanding of polarity. People have been prescribed, just like medication, a sedation narrative that is a one-sided narrative. If you ever want to investigate Look at also 
and this is again polarizing, look at the point of view from where Germany was after World War One. Look at the side of the Allies, the atrocities. They said, people can't listen to me seeing this without thinking I'm a Nazi and I'm cheering for them. Absolutely not. I'm looking at the other story. You could also read, which is an option, not being told to you, that the Nazis, for instance, invading Russia, Barbarossa, was like a preemptive strike because they were planning to invade Germany, which is not abnormal because you saw what happened after World War II. You had the Iron Curtain, you know, you had so much victims by Mao and Stalin. But what do we see? That's not being talked about. All the Hollywood movies are just about fascists, just about the Nazis, That's right. just about the Holocaust. There has been horrible things that have been happening there, absolutely. But what about the Rwandan genocide? What about Pol Pot? What about Stalin? What about Mao? What about that thing? Oh, yeah, no, that was wrongly executed with good principles. So you see that to the cultural institutions, Certain knowledge is allowed, certain perspective right. is allowed, certain narratives are allowed. And when you open up, not saying you should totally buy into that, those, but you get to see the action reaction and you see how things are being polarized and how you're being fed a very strict, narrow perspective about right. what went on then. I think it was Voltaire who said that if you want to know who's in control, find out who you can't criticize. Exactly, yeah. So when we look at the narratives that we're not allowed to criticize or question, those are the narratives we need to zero in on and find out why we're not allowed to question them. I mean, we're seeing it right now with the scam, the scandemic. We're not allowed to question it. We get censored on Facebook and YouTube. Well, why? <laughs> because they don't want you to see that truth. Why is the worst thing ever to be called a Nazi? And every every time you question it, you're an extreme right nationalist Nazi. Why is that the worst thing in the world? Yeah. Mao killed 80 million people. Stalin conservatively killed 40 million people. Pol Pot had the killing fields. They did atrocious things. Like uh, Joseph uh, Kony did uh, atrocious things. Like, why is that the worst? Why is it always being pushed in that corner? And why does other atrocities, oh, they're not so important? Like, you know, when you have like this comedy where Stalin and Mao is there, like, why is this guy getting all the attention? My high score was a lot higher than <laughs> this guy, you know? I don't know. Like, it kind of fits the narrative now. That's also what they do right now. Anytime you question the narrative, oh, is this extreme right fascist, you know, uh -huh. like Nazi, which I'm not at all. I don't adhere to that narrative at all. But there's evil in very different ideologies on very much extremes. And I find all those things extreme, all those things potentially evil. Right. Well, as I like to say, animals in metal cages, humans in mental cages. So when we're not allowed to question these things, it's because we're being kept in a mental cage. It's the information that we do or do not have that keeps us in these narrative enclosures. People have, I'm a principled guy. I'm, I'm also a certain personality type that's very much about principles. But look at this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, like people are cheering for one side and saying it's all the fault of the other side. It's action, reaction, and, you know, etc. But let's look at this Israeli uh, perspective. Oh, we have a homeland. We deserve a homeland. They're trying to expel us from our homeland. So we deserve to have a homeland and live freely there. And what do they do on the Palestinians? They drive them from their homeland. They can't live freely there and they get expelled. So how can you have principles here? <laughs> like, how can I take you serious? You're standing for this principle. I want to be respected while you actually do the same thing that you witnessed for so many centuries and you do it on to other. How can I take you serious this way? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll just be controversial here. 
the Palestinians are the Jews for the Israelis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're now the Jews that are getting persecuted and the Israelis are the ones that are doing it. And Israelis just, the, the Jews from Europe just moved there in the late 40s and took over. That's what's happened. And whether you agree with me or not, that's literally what happened. If you go over to Israel, you will see Palestinians living behind walls their whole lives. That was not the case in the late 40s. That has happened as a result of the refugees and the Jewish refugees from Europe, but also from around the world. Yeah, and again here, that war and conflict is weaponized because I know a lot of Jewish people also don't like the polarization, but you know, like they just like to set people up like it's all the Palestinians, it's all the Jewish people, etc. But when you're going to take a look at, for instance, you know, the Rothschild family, which was very strong in the UK and the Balfour Declaration, which was being done by the UK. And then in 1984, it was like started. There's a lot of stuff that seems to be arranged by people in power. And then they use this ancient old divide and conquer strategy, you know, to keep people occupied. So they stay in the shadows, you know, which doesn't mean people suffer, which doesn't mean atrocities are committed. But this is all being weaponized by people who sit higher up stay in the shadows, and people never look up at the bigger picture. Um, now, there, when I was in Palestine, excuse me, it, Jerusalem, there was a, a man who was an American Israeli, and he was giving a lecture on his book. It's called War Against the People. I can't remember his name at the moment. And he essentially, the thesis is very clear for him. The Gaza Strip is being used as a weapons and technology training ground, as it were. So all that the Israelis do against the Palestinians in Gaza is part of the Israeli uh, defense agenda to create these amazing weapons and this amazing uh, strategy that it can then sell to the world. Like it's like number two in the world, I think, from uh, the technology and the strategy that it cells. It's funny that we ended up in here because I also, you know, did a lot of research back in the 90s and I had like an end project that I compared the the, the first Netanyahu and Sharon and then the other one, Barat, or I don't know what his name was. I'm butchering the name probably. But I think the numbers back then, and I'm talking like, you know, the beginning of 2000, end of the 90s was like normally 72% was Palestinian and 28% was Israeli. Back then at the end of the 90s, it was completely reversed. After yeah. those wars in 67 and 73, you know, so they captured a lot of territory, et cetera. So they already got three times more territory than in the beginning, you know. Right. You see those maps over time where the uh, Palestinian land is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. You know what's fascinating? Because this actually dovetails to our, with our talk on masculinity, Philip. If you go to Israel and you talk to the Palestinian men, they're pretty damn masculine. Mm-hmm. They are, and almost all of them have been in jail. <laughs> you know, it's like they don't stop fighting. Like, and they all have this strong masculinity to them. Now, they're they're not the kind of dominant men that I'm talking about, but at least they're still masculine. And they're fighting, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and they're fighting. And I made friends with them, many of them. And I was told that a lot of them will just sit around and you know, they'll think, oh, was this a false flag attack on the Palestinians to get the Palestinians upset so that they'll fight back and stage a riot? So then the Israelis will clamp down on them. And, you know, I'll just say this. I don't think I need to, but I will. 
that just because Philip and I are talking about this and criticizing Israeli behavior doesn't mean that we're anti-Semitic. I actually believe that if you criticize Israel, disclaimer, Semitic, when you look it up, actually means like you know these Middle Eastern people, which includes right. Palestinians and Jews. Exactly, exactly. So I actually think of it as pro-Semitic to criticize Israel's behavior, not anti-Semitic, because if Israel is out of line, if their government is out of line in the way that things are happening, then you're giving you're you're criticizing it so it gets better. If we criticize Biden, are we anti-American? <laughs> yeah. We just criticize the people in power who abuse these things for their own agenda. So I'm not attacking the Jewish people or just yeah. Semites in general. I'm saying people in power on many different institutions exactly. are weaponizing the sphere, identity politics, all these things that mostly hurt the regular people. So when we're criticizing things, it's those people in power. It's that monopoly of decisions that set the dominance into place. Like the perfect example, like for me, criticizing Biden wouldn't mean I'm anti-American, you know? No. And when I was over there, I became friends with Israelis as well. Mm -hmm. And in particular, a man who was in the Israeli army, and he was very traumatized by what he had to do against Palestinians. And he basically defected. And he's like, I can't be an Israeli. I have to leave this country because of what we're doing to the... This happens a lot in India. Like after their military service, they space out on LSD or they have to recover from the trauma, you know, because they've been like so traumatized by it. You know, it's also horrible to having to do that when you feel like, you know, I'm hurting innocent people, you know, like... It's kind of like this, Philip. Imagine that the Chinese Communist Party came over to the United States and started taking over. (laughs) <laughs> and then the American men started fighting back. But the Chinese Communist Party was so powerful that they controlled the narrative. And so they were oh. able to But show- Mark, you don't understand. It's not <laughs> principles. When, when Jewish people stand up for Israel, it's fantastic. Nationalism is great. But if Americans stand up for nationalism, they're Nazis. <laughs> That's how simple it is. Right. So you, you judge people by their origin, and then you decide if they're racist or they're a Nazi. <laughs> totally makes sense. Right? Totally makes sense. Right. So if a Muslim well, yeah, country is like proud of their country, it's fantastic. If a white country is proud of their country, they're racist. That's right. So, you know, what's happened is it's okay and even fashionable to be prejudiced against white people and males in particular, and straight, so white straight males right here, right there. It's okay to be prejudiced against us, but it's not okay to be prejudiced against any other mm-hmm. person on the planet. Now, how in the world did that happen? Aren't we smart enough to see that it is actually wrong to simply be prejudiced? Exactly, I'm just, I just don't <laughs> like prejudice in general. I'm right. not saying like this person can criticize me and this person can criticize me. Either they can all criticize me or no one can criticize you. So that's okay. simple. Like. Not looking at your gender or sex or color of your skin or origin. I don't care. Like, I'm past that. But to be using that is being a racist, is being a sexist, etc. Yeah. You know, like, I waited tables in Harlem for six years. I lived in all black neighborhoods in New York. And people will tell me, white people will tell me, you know, black people can't be racist against white people because uh, white people are the oppressors. I'm like, I worked in Harlem for six years. I lived in black neighborhoods. Yeah, black people can be racist against white people. 
I what what happens if a black guy says like no that 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 white guy can't date my black sister because he's white? <laughs> What's that then? That's his personal issue. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's then just standing up for their culture. Okay. Yeah, no. I, what it is is I've dated across racial lines, and I'm a big believer in that for me personally and for other people. But I also, if if black people want to just date black people. I'm cool with that. Like, you know what? I'm 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 fine. You know what? One of the beautiful things about humans is expression, and there's nothing wrong with being proud of your culture or your origin. When I see Mexicans having their Mexican traditions, or when I'm like in Japan it. with the Japanese, that's the color. That's the that's the radiance yeah. in the expressions of people. That's what I like. Like, what are we gonna do with this globalized work uh, world? I'm gonna travel to Japan, and it just is the Japanese lunch garden and Japanese subway. And, and Big Mac, that's it. How was it? Well, that uh, that uh, McDonald's was a bit different in Japan and all the ethnic food, you know, the specific things all gone because it's all bland and gray. Like, why would you still travel then? What, what What's exciting about that? So when I did work in Harlem, one of the things I absolutely loved about it is that it was this concentration of black American culture. And I thought it was fucking amazing. And I it was the best experience I had as a waiter in my 15 years. And that's because those black people were sticking together in their culture. And that's great. Now, if they want to, you know, include other people or date outside of that culture, that's fine too. But when a culture is coherent and sticks with itself, they create something beautiful like the Palestinians in Jerusalem or Gaza Strip or the West Bank or in Japan. I was just saw an article about how, or a, a video from the news about how London is being so watered down with every neighborhood now. Like the majority, yeah. I think, is uh, non-English who is like living there, you know. It also boggles my mind to say like, yeah, UK is super racist. And then Sadiq Khan is the mayor of London. Like America is super racist, but they got a black president for eight years. Like, man, whoa, how do you pull that off in a racist country to be able to have the president be a black guy or the mayor of London then be like, I don't know if he's Muslim in terms of like religion, but of like ethnic origin, you know. Yeah. You know, when a culture is self-coherent and just sticks to itself or a race or whatever, that's not uh, necessarily a racist thing on their part. They could just love being around each other. Like when I was in Harlem, you know, it's not racist for that to be totally black or mostly black. It's not. That's just where black people collect and hang out. <laughs> you know, so they're not necessarily being racist. They could be. And there was racism that I experienced there. But most of the time, 99% of the time, I wasn't experiencing racism there. They were like, this white guy's cool. <laughs> you know, we like him. But it could be, you know, if, you know, clan people are getting together, then that is a racist yeah. thing. But most people that I know, especially right now, they don't condone those things, you know, like right. there's, there's good in like your own community, no matter if it's like music wise or how you dress or how you get together, you know, there is some kind of bond that connects people. Also think it's stronger in Muslim culture. That's besides sometimes a value difference is what we're expecting them, like the brotherhoods sticking together, yeah. still, you know, standing their ground, etc. There's also something beautiful about that. And then this whole cultural appropriation. This is the, this is the question that I asked of Coca-Cola, how can you have a program to have people be less white without it becoming cultural appropriation? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> they haven't thought that far ahead. 
that's good. That's good, Philip. <laughs> yeah, and also these things like blaming people for inherent traits they haven't chosen for and are part of their identity. Like, how toxic is that to really yeah. judge people just for existing, just for having existed or being born into a certain part of the world, certain color or certain uh, sex? You know. Well, to bring it full circle, like. Even us talking about this and penetrating the taboos is itself a masculine thing because we're prizing truth over everything. Like you're going to put this podcast up somewhere and a lot of people are going to see it wherever. And you and I are just going to be laying down the truth. <laughs> yeah. Penetrating truth. Yeah. And it's like, we're no, we don't care because you have to penetrate without fear of consequence because you realize the truth is what is the most valuable thing. The delusion on this planet is so severe mm -hmm. that just this act of penetrating you know falsehoods and laying down truth is such an important service and this is also a dominating act what we do right now i'm not dominating to make you submit to what my perspective but i'm having a confident perspective that can change i'm bouncing off my ideas with you with the world i can always change my <clears throat> mind but i'm Penetrating to planting seeds that can blossom into people developing their own truth or, you know, having different yeah. perspectives. And that is very powerful, but I don't do it to submit people. I do this to empower myself, speak my truth, get right. feedback. And maybe that can inspire other people to speak their truth or take pearls of wisdom that I have. And they like some things and they don't like certain things. That's like, fine, like own your truth, speak your wisdom and own that. You know, for me, there's nothing more powerful than that. It's also not my intention to hurt people or you know, blame people or hurt people, etc. But I also have my intention. If you're going to be triggered or hurt, etc. You have a different perspective. Own that perspective. Then maybe I'm not part of your tribe. Maybe you know I don't like you. You don't like me. That's fine. We don't have to be liked by everyone, and you can just just let it be. And instead of trying to change my speech, my way of thinking, my way of acting, you know, and attacking me, like no, just you know, I'm a huge advocate of I just let them be. You know. Yeah, people just need to take responsibility for the sensitivity to things and so that they can't just blame others. When you blame other people for your own triggers, that's disempowering, whether you're a male or a female. You know, and this thing that I call truth cock, it's what we're doing here, which is penetrating for the sake of truth. So that Maybe one thing I still want to get your feedback about, like one of the things that they say you have masculine speech, which is solution oriented, and you have feminine speech, which is more about being in the moment and that transient kind of emotional wave. Should men communicate more with women and just listen to them and provide a space for them to disperse their feelings in the moment without trying to fix it? Well, it depends on what they want, these men, you know. There are women who come to me in messenger on Facebook and they dump on me. <laughs> I don't allow that because we don't have a relationship. They're not a client. They're not a friend. And they're not my beloved. If they're my friends, then they're going to know better. They're not going to dump on me. If they're a stranger, then maybe they'll be my client. Okay. So my time is valuable. I'm a purpose and mission oriented person. So if I'm going to be listening to a woman express her feelings, then I'm going to choose that for very clear reasons. If a woman just expects me to do that because I'm a man, it's not going to work. She's not entitled to that attention. So would you say like if women want to talk about feelings, it's best that they talk about it with their female friends? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, if, if my woman wants to talk about her feelings, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, 
wonderful. If, if I'm not busy in that moment, then we'll do it then. Mm-hmm. If I am busy, then I'll say, let's do it in a few hours. And, and then I will serve her. So whatever her feelings are, you know, if her feelings are really wonderful, then there's nothing I need to do to help just enjoy her feminine expression. If she's having a problem and she's expressing her feelings vulnerably, then I'll do what I can to serve her and lead her to a resolution out of that particular swamp or difficulty. And if it's a friend, if it's a female friend, I may or may not have time for that. It might be Some women have the complaint that they say, he just doesn't listen to me. (laughs) What does that mean when a woman says he just doesn't listen to me? Well, it also depends on, well, it does depend on him, but it also depends on her. When she's talking, what is she doing? How is she talking? Is she blaming him? And is she just being self-absorbed and using him as an emotional toilet? Right? So if she's dumping on him emotionally and treating him as a toilet, yeah, he's got a million better things to do. He's not going to listen. For people who want to listen to you and your teachings and everything you have to offer, where can they find out more about all the work that you do? All right. Thank you for that. So I'm on Facebook. I also work with Zach Rohde in the Relationship of Your Dreams platform. We teach a dominant course for men where we teach them how to be dominant in relationship with women. And it's not, again, it's not that jerk asshole kind of dominance. I also have a Facebook group called Truthcock. Every month I publish a Truthcock book and selections from the book are featured in the group. I do a live stream in the group. There's about 30 live streams now, almost 50 hours of video. And that's a nice thriving community. We're about over 40 people. So there's a subscription to that. What else? There's a great free group that you know about with about over 3,000 people. So if you want to know more about this, just find me on Facebook, Mark Benet, and there are links to all these different areas. Maybe a last thing I'm still curious about, because you've been in a relationship for a longer period of time now, I think, right? Like, what is your perception about the the sanctity or the value of monogamy and being Mm -hmm. in a monogamous relationship? Yeah, so for me, it's about monogamy. The man leads that container or that vessel. It's very tight. He leads it according to his inner vision. So there isn't any other person or third person involved or multiple people involved. And the reason that I advocate for that and practice that is because of devotion. When the man, the masculine has the inner vision of devotion, he protects that vessel so that that devotion can flower and become extraordinary. And that's where he serves and is served. She serves and is served. And it's just an exquisite way to be. I've never been into polyamory or anything like that. I need a container for my devotion. So it's really about reaching those heights of devotion with another human being. So it's a matter of serving your mission and then devoting to the mission and that way you're also devoted to your woman instead of like when we talked about the the harpies or stealing away from your mission, it can sometimes, you know, you're serving then the harpies or not stealing your vessel towards uh, the promised land, you know? Well, when you're living your truth, you're on mission, you generate great power. And you're able to hold your self-emotional responsibility, hold your masculine axis, and show up as a leader in relationship. If you don't know what you're doing on this planet, you don't know your truth or your mission, you're not able to take responsibility for yourself without direction. So you can't show up with power and leadership with your woman. So that's why you have to get your truth and your mission and your purpose very clear. And that's what allows you to lead your woman because you've got that power and you've got the ability to take responsibility 
for her happiness. She's taking responsibility for her happiness as well, but you are too. Well, thanks for your her- 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 Heraklian efforts to start the Odyssey journey and empower men and create radiant women. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Philip. You're fantastic, buddy. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.